Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 61. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, who didn't even know what a Kiwi was until high school, Pat Flynn. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Pat Flynn, and welcome to session 61 of the Smart Passive Income podcast. It's actually Thursday today, the day that this particular episode is published, and it's not because I'm a day late. It's because I'm experimenting with a Thursday podcast versus my usual Wednesday podcast launch. Uh, Why? Because I can because I can. And that's sort of a theme that you're going to hear uh, partly in today's episode. The fact that as entrepreneurs, you know, we have the ability to do whatever we want. We can experiment and we should be experimenting to see what will give us the best results. So what I'm doing is I'm testing this Thursday podcast for now. And again, it may change in the future and that's okay. You know, you have to change things around sometimes in order to find out what the best solution is may be. And so I'll be seeing the response as far as the number of downloads, the general feel from the audience. And, uh, you know, it also relates to how long the written post that I typically publish on Mondays on the blog, you know, how long that's up before something new comes along. Um, It sort of gives it an extra day at the top of the blog before the podcast comes out on Thursday. So yeah, that's that. That's why this is being published on Thursday instead of yesterday or Wednesday. In other news, let go my new book uh, on the snippet app platform has been doing very well thank you so much to all of you who have downloaded it so far Um, an update to the app and the book just came out which uh, got rid of a lot of the bugs some people weren't able to view the videos for whatever reason and the recent update in the app store fixed that it seems uh, which is great and the response has just been amazing so far i had a few people email me saying that it was life-changing for them and that that's that's so cool and a couple of people told me that they cried while reading it and shed a tear and you know I don't want to make people cry but 
I, it's kind of cool that, you know, something I put hard work into has actually had that kind of a, an emotional effect on some people. Um, you know, people are enjoying the video interviews in the book with my dad, uh, with my wife, April. Um, there's a blooper reel that just came out too, which is, you know, a lot of people are responding to. Caleb and I had a, a Caleb is my videographer. He and I had, a, had such a fun time putting that together. Um, I'll link to that to let go. And all the links and everything mentioned here in today's episode in the show notes. As always, since this is section, or excuse me, session 61, you can find those notes at www.smartpassiveincome.com slash session 61. So thank you all again for taking the time to listen to the show and spend some time with me today. I'm really excited about today's featured guest, someone I recently gotten to know pretty well at a recent speaking engagement. Uh, so you know, here's the recording, which starts with a brief intro, and then and then we get right into it. So I hope you enjoy. All right, today I'm super stoked to have on the show someone I recently met at Michael Hyatt's platform conference in Nashville this past February. He is, to say the least, a visionary entrepreneur who spoke about finding ideas by shifting our perspective a little bit and capitalizing on them, taking things you know that can happen in our everyday lives and just looking at them differently to find business opportunities. And, and his presentation was so, I, my just mouth was open the whole time. It was awesome and I could not stop listening. He says, a shift in perspective radically changes the use of objects or ideas and that is entrepreneurship. And that quote is awesome and why I'm totally inspired by this guy right now. He's done and is doing so many amazing things. So I wanna to talk to him about how he's got into what he's doing, um, You know, mainly startups and things like that, software development. He's also advising and coaching other startups and businesses, so we know he knows a lot about what's going on right now. He's got an interesting Kickstarter campaign that I wanna talk about too. Uh, he's a family man like myself, um, so we connect on that level. I can't wait for us to pick his brain, so let's get right into it. To all the listeners out there, let's welcome John Saddington. What's up, John, how are you doing today? Good, man, thanks for that introduction. And it was uh, great to meet you at, at Michael's uh, conference. That was, that was really cool. Oh, my pleasure, dude, and, and I was really, really happy to meet you. We have a lot in common, I think. And you know, it was funny, when I was kind of crafting this intro, I was trying to figure out what website or business to introduce you with. Usually I say, oh, here's, you know, person, whatever, from this website. But you have so much stuff going on. I know you have a personal site at john.do, but, you know, when someone asks you, what do you do, what do you say? You know what? That's it's very interesting. It Although I've been in, an entrepreneur and in entrepreneurship for a while, it actually uh, took... I actually came to the conclusion last year where I, I was able to very comfortably say, I am an entrepreneur, and especially be able to say it with a straight face, and especially be able to say it in front of my wife, who, of course, is my greatest fan and also my greatest critic. But um, it, was, it really took four or five years for me to be able to say, to answer that question and say, very casually and very confidently, I am a full time entrepreneur. And uh, so that's what I typically say. So when someone asks the obvious follow-up question, well, okay, you're, not, you're an entrepreneur, what, what, what do you do? What are you into? Uh, how, so, would you, how would you respond? Yeah, typically they then, of course, ask that, and I say, well, software development, especially high-tech, um, consumer web. And depending on who I'm talking to, I'll sprinkle the different words that might provide some context. But ultimately, it's, it's web software. Uh, there, I've been used, you know, building web software uh, as early as I can remember, um, and I started building software for large corporate enterprises as early as um, 14 or 15 years old. And uh, I don't 
I don't necessarily see that changing. It's, it really is the niche for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I get a lot of pleasure from it. Why do you get pleasure from building software as opposed to you know, all these other types of businesses that are out there? I think it's because I have the opportunity, one, for instant feedback. Um, and there's just something powerful when you get to be able to create something and see um, kind of that feedback loop, just even by yourself when you're sitting in front of your computer, to see something be created out of nothing. Um, I was really fascinated and, and loved uh, kind of erector sets and Lincoln logs and, and Legos um, when I was younger. And I loved being able to take just a bundle of, you know, whatever, the materials, raw materials, and instantly create something that not only I enjoyed, but that my friends or my family or, or you know, my brothers and sisters would actually play with. And I just thought, this is really cool. I get to create stuff that I enjoy, but also creates value for other people. And uh, to watch other people use the stuff that I built was was really, really cool. So how did you start developing business software solutions for large businesses? I mean, you were 14, 15 years old. You said you were you were still in school. How did how did you how did you get picked up by these large companies? Yeah, my my dad allowed me um, introduced me to one of the product managers at where he worked on a whim and just said, you know, I, this is probably really random, but introduced me to to him and said, hey, my son's really interested in computers and knows how to build software. I, and just let me kind of take it from there. And I got I got really lucky, if, I, if I'm honest. I had building, um, I was building HTML websites and, and created my first company around that same time. But Flash, Flash technology um, was, was on the rise. And um, this large corporate enterprise had never engaged with Flash technology. They were Trying to um, build up build up websites and e-commerce solutions for for the uh, the Japanese people, um, kind of the pack room type area, and they knew that the thirteen to eighteen year old Japanese girl really enjoyed animation from all of their kind of human studies and psychology studies. Um, this was for AccuView contact lenses, and so they said, "Well, we don't know how to track. We don't really know how to create animation on the web." But we've heard of this thing called Flash, and it just so happened that I had been developing very heavily in Flash at the time. And so, again, just kind of very fortunate timing where I was on the cusp of that great technology, and here was a large enterprise who was very interested. And so they quickly created a role for me. I guess I guess technically it was an internship. I'm not even sure if I was supposed to be employed at that age. <laughs> and uh, I started building prototypes for an international e-commerce system, um, for active content lenses. Wow, that's pretty cool. I have some interesting stuff about Flash as well. I remember when it was first breaking out, and I got my uh, first copy of Adobe Flash, and I started playing with it. And you know, I actually made my first website ever out of Flash. Oh yeah. And it was a website called Surfers versus Bodyboarders. <laughs> Because I was totally into uh, bodyboarding at the time, and there was always like a clash in San Diego between those two communities. And so I created the site to just, I, I, I just created the homepage and put some cool music and animation behind it and little graphics that, you know, increased and decreased the scale. And I never did anything with it. But it, I know Flash, and it's, it's, that's awesome that uh, you did a lot better things than I did with it. Uh, here's a question. Were you on the surfer or the bodyboard side? I was on the bodyboarder side. That's cool. That's the, I, I've never learned to surf, but I really have enjoyed bodyboarding. Oh, sweet. Yes, another bodyboarder. Every time I say that, you're like, dude, you're so lame. You're a sponger. It's like, <laughs> oh, man, that's cool. 
I can. I learned to bodyboard in Jersey. I grew up in Jersey, so the the New Jersey beach, which has been overrun with the Jersey Shore reality TV show, is actually a legit place. But um, anyway, oh, body- nice, nice. Jersey. <laughs> cool. So awesome, fellow bodyboarder. So how did you start? You, you said you were working on your first company from then. Tell us about your first company and then where that took you. Well, it's just really cool. The um, I, again, I started building applications and software even before then, but it was really around fourteen or fifteen, kind of my freshman year in high school, where um, one of my father's friends introduced me to kind of the, some of the server side scripting stuff. He was um, he was an entrepreneur. He had built a huge B2B2C piece of software for, um, and I can't even remember the industry, but eventually he was purchased, acquired by Microsoft. So he, he, uh, he exited at a very young age and was incredibly wealthy. And so he, he came along and, and, and knew that I was interested and he, he helped me establish my first server, DNS and routing. I didn't know anything about that, but he said that he just said that this is what it's going to take for you to, to create an online business and an online company. If, if this is where you want to head, I'll do all the hard stuff, registering, all the legal paperwork. You just build a great product. And, and so I loved that. I loved having that great mentor and kind of being, um, being, being mentored by him, but also helping him teach me kind of the fundamentals of business. And so I remember sitting in kind of the, this was really random. I remember trying to, my biggest struggle was the name of the company. And I was sitting in the pew on, at church on Sunday and I was flipping through my, like the Bible in front of me. And I came upon, um, Melchior and Balthazar, uh, kind of the wise men, uh, that, that visited Jesus. And I was just like, I'm just going to call it Melchior design. <laughs> and so I started creating Melchior design and it was a flash shop and, uh, I never got any, any clients. Because I was I was just a kid, but I learned how to build applications, and I learned how to to market. And even though I never technically got any any real clients from it, I learned the fundamentals of business: what it takes to create one, to why you need the legal documentation, why you need accounting, and um, and that was that was really the the beginning of it. And where did you go from there? What kind of launched you into this whole sort of startup realm? Um, I, I like I said earlier, you're doing so much stuff. When did things start to pick up and you started to get clients or you started to build things that actually people were using? Yeah. Well, my story went, became very, very typical, I would suppose. And I'm probably very much like many of your listeners. Uh, I went to college. I was able to really help fund myself through college by building software for companies. Um, and then because I knew no, nothing, no, no other option, I, I joined the kind of the working class. I, I became um, an engineer at some very large companies for for Johnson Johnson. I went back to them. I worked for Dell as a senior engineer for on their enterprise side, and then I became an executive at a Fortune 50 company at Fox and News Corp. And I just I became just a, another software engineer, just kind of rising through the ranks. Um, and, and most of that's because, again, one I didn't know any better, but my father also was a corporate man his entire life. He 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 co-opted out of college um and then worked for the same company for 37 years and so you know we all model our lives after very much so after our parents and so i, I tried to really respect that the problem was um and the, the corporate life was never for me and i quickly cycled through jobs 
like very quickly. Um, I was either fired from a number of jobs or every six months I would move into a different, you know, uh, role within the company or I would try something entirely different. And it, and yet despite my dysfunctionality in, in corporate life, it was rewarded. That was the tough part. My sort of rebellious nature and, and inability to fit in was actually rewarded in technology. And so I continued to gain traction and again, eventually becoming an executive. But the moment that I became an executive, I realized that I no longer was able to touch the stuff that I loved. It was 99% people management and 1% product. And, and, I, and it was almost like I had, it was experienced a living death mm-hmm. where I spent most of my time traveling, um, politicking within the organizations, marketing you know, my budget and, and arguing over budgetary things. And then maybe once a month, maybe, I was able to sit down with the teams and be like, okay, so what are, what are we building? Mm-hmm. And I experienced just the slow death. And so I, I just couldn't take anymore. I realized that for a large corporation, um, kind of an executive director, executive role was as far as I possibly could go. And so I started thinking, well, I want to I build apps for myself. I know how to build products and software. Um, I want to see if I can build some stuff for me. And so at night um, and on the weekends, I started building small applications and fiddling with this and fiddling with that. And that's probably one encouragement I would give definitely to, to your listeners who are, who are trying to achieve you know, a smart passive income, you know, a la your blog. But if you're working a nine-to-five, it's okay to start on your dreams very, you know, in a very small way by spending some time in the evenings and the weekends investing and exploring your opportunities. And uh, so that's what I did. It wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't a jump off a cliff and then hopefully a parachute you know, magically appears it was just very a kind of a stutter step approach to to moving into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, a lot of people think that they have to totally quit before they can devote all their time because they think they need a hundred percent of their mind, their body, their energy, their spirit into what they're doing. And as much as that will help, it's also very risky. And I think you know, taking it the sort of step by step approach, even just investing an hour in yourself every day. I think that's a tip I heard when I was first starting out. Just make sure you give yourself and your passion an hour a day and see what goes from there. Um, you know, that can go a really long way. So you started, you know, devoting a little bit of time to what interested uh, you, what you were interested in building apps for yourself. Um, did it eventually start? Did you eventually start to see something come as a result of all that work? And, and uh, what was your first app, I guess? Yeah, and, and I shared a little bit of this at the conference. I started seeing some significant traction. Um, you know, one of the things I shared uh, was that there's something fascinating about entrepreneurship where it's not, you know, people think, well, to be an entrepreneur, you need to be incredibly, um, you know, you need to be a genius or you need to, to you know, somehow discover some some secret formula to, to to an industry or a marketplace, or have some ingenious kind of groundbreaking, game changing idea, but I haven't actually found that to be true for not just for myself, but for the majority of entrepreneurs that that I know. You know, there there there, there are opportunities um, in the very ordinary, in the very ordinary mundane, where even the slightest change of perspective, you know how to brush your teeth a little bit faster or, you know, how to do the dishes a little bit better. Like things that you, you, you engage with every single day and you just, you just take for granted that, um, you know, that, that, that those are the best practices. 
you know, that, that everything is the perfect wheel. I remember one of my professors, um, I'm sorry, one of my previous mentors um, who helped me kind of gain traction in entrepreneurship said, the world sees, the world has one lens and it assumes that the, every object and every solution was the perfect wheel. And what he was getting at is when we created the wheel, there really hasn't been an iter- a technological iteration on the wheel since it was really invented. It was a perfect solution, right, mm-hmm. um, really out, out of the gate. And so people just assume, well, you know, the way that I'm you know, doing my laundry, best solution ever. There's no, no way that innovation could possibly occur. And entrepreneurship is looking at it and saying, you know what? I don't assume that that is actually the best way. There must be a better way. And so my entire, my entire entrepreneurship background has just been looking at things a little bit differently. One of the first um, you know, applications I did, built, that was a success was I just took a look at myself. I'm an, an adopted um, South Korean twin. Um, and I just realized when, when I was looking for um, online that there were, weren't any social networks that were catering to adopted people groups. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I can just assume that I should go into MySpace or I don't even know if Facebook, I guess Facebook was around. Maybe I should just use one of those. But I said, you know what, maybe I should just start a social network for adopted people groups. And that was one of my first kind of commercial successes. I built it in a couple of weeks, launched it, and then it became big news and then it was acquired. Um, the, one of my second startups was in 2008 where I had loved this video game called Warcraft and was like a super mega uber fan of this video game franchise and there wasn't a social network for you know video game players who loved World of Warcraft and I didn't do anything crazy unique I didn't do any groundbreaking things I just took some of the elements of good social networking and then again applied it to um, an interest that I had, and that landed on Kotaku, which is part of the Gawker network back in 2008. And then that was acquired by a much larger gaming franchise. Um, and that, so that was my second major exit. And so all, all that to say is when you look at my history of building applications, even like the Kickstarter you know, project, which I guess we'll talk about you know, at some point, I'm not doing anything crazy unique. Um, I'm not doing anything groundbreaking. And I, I say that because I want to encourage your listeners – um, as, and also remind myself that you know, innovation it can be very small. You know, innovation can happen everywhere. And I, and I really do believe that all of your listeners have problems and have solutions. They've just never really tried to look, look out for them or execute on them. And uh, so I think everyone has an entrepreneurship bug in them. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Now, I want to go back to your first app. You're talking about social network for adopted uh, people, and and like how? Okay, so you built it in two weeks. Obviously, did you built this yourself? Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, it was acquired. Like, how did that? How did it go from coding to all of a sudden getting, uh, you know, launching? And you know, how how did you create buzz for it? How did you market it? And what may, What do you feel? Well, like, why do you feel like it was acquired? Um, that's a great question, and, and you know, here's one of the the neatest, um, kind of the neatest things, and also kind of my my biggest weakness is my biggest weakness is I'm not a marketer at all. I don't have a classical training in marketing, but it is a fundamental part of um, great you know, great business success. But there's something that happens with online products and online 
um, kind of technology now is if you build a great product, it's it somehow speaks for itself. And so when I when I launched it, you know, when I when I launched it kind of into the, the nether world of the internet, all I did was I went to the largest adoption website that I knew of at the time, and I just sent them an email. I just said, hey, I, I created a application, a social network for adopted people, and you probably have no concept of what social networking is because you might be fairly technologically backward, but <laughs> I didn't say that, but I thought that. And you know, just take a look, and you know, it's free. You know, I, I, no marketing ploy, you know, kind of verbiage. I just was like, here it is. And within hours, I had seen that that whoever it was, she signed up, and then I saw a number of other people sign up as well that had the same corporate email address. So quickly, she had shared it with her colleagues within that organization. And suddenly there were 20 people from that organization who are now part of the network. And then it just, the software worked and they were starting to chat and have, um, make connections within the application. And then it just, it they, they must've emailed it out to everyone they knew. And then the next thing I knew was a couple days later, the Austin American Statesman, which is the local Austin newspaper in Austin, Texas, calls me up and says, Hey, we'd love to interview about this network, social network that you have. And I literally was like, I have no idea who you are. I just, I read your paper every day, but I, how did, how did you hear about this? And anyway, and that's kind of the short end of it. What, what's neat is be, despite my marketing dysfunction, and I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners are really good at marketing. So they have an opportunity even beyond what I can do. But um, just the, a great product speaks for itself, and marketing helps accentuate and make people aware of a great product. But on the, on the flip side, is it's worth noting that um, marketing help or if a bad product with with a bad product, marketing will make that bad product look even worse. And so you always have to have a great product, or marketing will just actually be the knife in its back. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did you know that that was going to be a good product? I had hoped it would be, and um, you know, I, I had built a, a system that was very simple. You know, it was a closed network where you could you had to have a basic profile, and you could connect with others and have private conversation because it, that's as far as I knew, um, at least from a software perspective, and that's as far as I I had personally wanted. You know, I just wanted to connect with like-minded people who were adopted, who were just, you know being challenged with the same life challenges of of being adopted, and. And just saying, I just want a, a, a private place where I can have those conversations. And that's all those th other people needed as well. Um, much later, you know, we, we started thinking about galleries and media uploads and all that stuff. But at first, the MVP, the minimal viable product, the, the initial version was, was really simple. And, uh, but it satisfied a need, and, and it worked. How many people were on your social network when it got acquired? Oh, I think we had upwards of 800, so not even that many. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, because one of my follow-up questions was going to be, is the whole point here of, of startups, it just seems like a, and, and you're basically saying no but uh, to this to this answer, but um, I've just been noticing a trend where startups and, and the, their whole purpose is to just get tons of people using their stuff, even if it's something for free, with the hope of exiting. Yeah, it's... It you hear all this research now 
Um, and I'm, I'm sure you've read it because you're, you're very well read and kind of part of this culture. But it's like Facebook will do even studies about how much each you know, user is worth and something like eight, you know, every user who signs up is eventually for the life of that account worth $18. And I think that's one very tragic. But also I understand it. They are a commercial company and they're interested in having those numbers so they can create a valuation for their you know, stakeholders. And of course now it's a publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. But there, you can't put a price tag on someone's, a person's value. You know, because you know, one, of course, the kind of the, you know, the, uh, the, the touchy-feely, everyone has value, that is true. But one person in a social network might have incredible influence um, and just as much influence as another person. And the valuation of a startup or especially kind of a social network is not the amount of people but the amount of influence of the people within the social network. And so, for example, a great example is this, this the adopted social network that I created. I mean I had senior executives in that, um, in, in that social network mm-hmm. to be so, you know, senior executives of, of one of the largest adoption you know, companies um, you know, stateside. And so even if it was just 800 people, I had the entire leadership team and the board of directors. And so right there, the, the value of the actual entire network was very large. People who had incredible influence on not just their organization, but also policymaking um, with the government. You know, people who would, these people had connection to lobbyists who were lobbying on behalf of the adopted people groups and, and, and legislation that would help make adoption easier for, for families who couldn't have children. And so it was a, it was a big deal. And, and it really helped remind me that it's not about numbers, it's about the quality of the people within those networks that really, really does count. And that's why, you know, you'll see, and this really applies to blogging, but, in a lot of ways, that's why you'll see some blogs who have incredible influence but only seem to have like a thousand followers. And yet you'll also see on the same side, you know, a blog that has a, which appears to have a hundred thousand followers but can't seem to make a dime. And it's just, you know, it's just the, the quality of that, that product, that blog and the people who follow it really, really do, does make it um, successful. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's continuing on to this because it's just so interesting to me. What made you decide to sell it? Because I think a lot of people, you know, if they're going through something like this, they created something successful. Um, they might feel bad about selling it, or would feel too attached to it to sell it. Man, that's a great question, and I have a really great answer because I get asked <laughs> that a lot. Good. Um, <laughs> my my perspective on entrepreneurship is very different, and in fact, this really applies to blogging in a very strong way. Um, you know, I've been blogging since 2001 and blog in every single day. Um, and I write anywhere from, uh, three to 5,000 words a day. Um, wow. where, and, and I, where do you write? Um, I write on my personal blog. Um, I have a couple blogs, which no one knows about, um, because those are personal. Um, oh, cool. then I write on my business blog, um, my couple business product blogs. And then I write on WP daily, which we write anywhere from, six to 20 articles a day, at least at this point. So, but I have just, I've just, I just love writing it. And it's because it helps create clarity within my thoughts. Um, and it helps slow me down, but back to your question. So, so I'm often asked because you've been blogging for so long, like what's the secret or, you know, how do you decide to what to blog and how do you decide what blog you should start? And the answer is actually quite simple. I, I tell people you should 
blog about the stuff that you're really interested, but not the stuff that you're passionate about, which really flies in the face of er almost every blogger I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear this all the time. You should blog what you're passionate about. You should blog what you're passionate about. And although that's true and it works for some people, what I've discovered is when I blog about stuff that I really like, not love, but like, there is a is a distance that I can create between me and the blog, which lets me make critical business decisions about the blog. Because when someone offers me a, you know, a six-figure valuation for a blog that I like, I can make a very easy decision about letting it go. But when I when I am in love with my blog or in, you know write about the stuff that I love, um, it is it is emotionally impossible for me to make a a critical decision. Um, and so I've always seen my blogs as business opportunities, um, not as kind of personal you know notebooks and endeavors you know to showcase who I am to the world, although that happens, I want to be able to leave behind any blog that I create so I can go entertain the next opportunity, the next project, because I am a serial entrepreneur. My current projects are not my final projects. And because I create that distance, I can make those decisions. And it, it's, very, it's a very different philosophy, but it's what, 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 it's what really worked for me. Um, yeah, that's definitely unconventional in this sort of world that I'm in. You know, everyone talks about blogging about your passions, and and and, and I'm not saying that that that's bad. It really does work. But when you know when when you, you know, when you're offered money for maybe even, you know for you the smart passive income blogging, and you're you are you are literally in love with it and married with it. Like there's no dollar figure that will buy you out, and which could be a great thing, which means you're committed to it long term. This is the last blog you ever create. But if you're having an entrepreneurial spirit and and you know and bug within you, you're going to be want to be able to leave it. And it's just so hard to leave something you're so emotionally attached to. Um, but and that doesn't mean that you're not putting your emotion into it. That doesn't mean that you're not giving it your all. You are. I'm, I'm writing it, you know, about the stuff that I do all the time, and I I love it. But for I mean, for example, I'll just. I'll just let this slip here, um, but uh, like tentblogger.com, which is my kind of my personal blog right now. Ted? Tent blogger. Tent blogger. Yeah, and I I launched that in two jeez uh, two thousand eleven, so about two years ago or so, which is an iteration on previous blog, which is an iteration on previous blog. I'm about to rebrand that blog completely. It's going to be very much of a shock because I built a very very strong brand around tent blogger and. Uh, so you were probably the first one to know about that, really. But so within the, within the next couple of months, I'm going to be rebranding, and it's going to shock tens of thousands of people. They're like, "How could you possibly do that? Like, you are, you know, tech blogger. You are, you can, you create this new philosophy, this new paradigm of thinking of kind of digital tent making within you know the online space. Like, how can you possibly leave that? And the answer is as easy as you know, as sad as it might sound, it's very easy. It's I'm not in love with it. It, it was a phase of the season of my life, and I can leave it behind, and I can do something better, and I can iterate, and I can advance my own personal career. And if you're willing to follow me, great. If you're not, that's totally cool too, because you know you can go to Pat Flynn, you know, <laughs> but you can go to you can go many other people who 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 write daily. But and in fact, every time I every time I rebrand myself, I lose a lot of people, and I'm okay with that. I don't 
I don't mind that. It's just yeah. I was going to ask about that because you know, as a blog, for me as a blogger on Smart Passive Income, I feel that I have this really strong connection with my audience. I have this almost responsibility um, for them to do certain things. And you know, if I were to rebrand or leave, um, you know, I would feel bad. So how do you? separate that when you're building yeah. a community you know i and this question i think is relevant to everyone because say for instance all of you out there build a blog and you become sort of a personality behind it and then all of a sudden you're offered i don't know 20 million dollars for it or whatever um like how do how how would you determine whether that's that's you know like i don't know you could become a sellout or you um you know you are trading money for your audience, who, which is where you know who who helped you start up and get that blog going. I mean, there's just that just sort of uh, there's, it's leaving me very confused right now. Yeah, and it's a great question. It's one that you know I can't answer for you. I can't answer for anyone, but it's one that I personally can answer very easily. You know, people have followed me, um, and I have some very long, long time fans who who have followed me through every iteration that I've gone through and they follow me. These are what we call, you know, our true fans, my true fans, the ones that are, that know my history and know and really understand why I do what I do. And my intention is to always share the stuff that I'm doing for good or for bad and to document personally my experience into entrepreneurship into online software development um, and, and running a business. And because I'm an entrepreneur, I, I, I am always the first one to jump in the line of fire, the first one to try something different, the first one to try. I'll, I'll tell you for exa- one great example is um, almost uh, every, every six months I, I, I try something new with my Twitter account. I will either develop some small piece of software that might wipe my entire account away um, or all the followers that I have and start from scratch or I will auto follow like everyone. And I have done this three or four times, and I will tell you some some of the most vitriolic and emotionally charged and just hateful emails have come when I have done that. When I have you know wiped every follower away, and I get the, suddenly I'm inundated with hundreds of emails saying, "How dare you unfollow me?" Like you know, I've been following you for six months, and you know, and I've contributed you know a hundred pages to your your blog and and now you even follow me I'll never you know you know f you and it's just and at this point I'm used to it but the first time I was like oh my goodness I cannot believe how personal some people are taking this but but that's you know and I'm all thinking is that's what I do as an entrepreneur I'm I am experimenting I'm constantly trying new things and if it works I'm going to tell you about it and if it sucks I'm going to tell you about it and then you can try it if you'd like. If you don't want to try it, that's fine. And the, the, the people that, again, my true fans, they, they don't even bat an eye. They're like, that's, that's what John does. And when I rebrand in a couple months again, they're going to say, that's what John does. And I know I'm going to get a couple emails, more than a handful, that are say, how, how could you possibly rebrand and leave that legacy behind? And I became a, you know, whatever, fill in the blank because of you. And, and, but that's, that's not why I started writing. You know, I, again, I started writing to document the, the things that I was doing and, 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 and trying to create value for them, for, for my audience, um, you know, as I was doing it. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm unapologetic about it. Yeah, well, I think as long as you know what, 
why you do what you do and, and you always stick by it that you know you really have nothing else to worry about and there's always going to be people out there who are going to you know that there, there's a ton of people out there and you, there's no way you can please everybody with every single move that you do and i think that's a really important point when it comes to blogging or building an audience you know you're going to have to make changes and i know for example right now i'm going through a design change it's going to be um you know there's going to be a new design Ooh. on the blog in a couple months and the last time i did this there were hundreds of emails saying terrible decision or whatever and uh, you know you just kind of have to keep going because you put in the effort to do the research to make sure that the design that you're doing or whatever changes that you're making is uh is what you want to do yeah and it's yeah it's like um it's i cannot remember i wish i could give credit to where credit's due but there's a great quote about um kind of disruption and you know innovation within the technology sector at first you know, innovation is seen as complete blasphemy. You know, it's like, holy crap, what, what is, what is that? What is Twitter? That is the stupidest thing. Is ridiculed. Yeah, I, I thought it was dumb. Right, and then, then guess what? It becomes attractive, and, um, you know, and people that kind of first, th- you know, trendsetters and thought leaders adopt it. Then it's become still taboo. It becomes from r- the ridiculous to taboo, and then it becomes normative, and then. And then it's no longer innovative because everyone's doing it. And so, but the people who created the ridiculousness, right, their job is then to become, create more ridiculousness. And it's, a, it's just a crazy cycle of being ridiculed and then being harangued and then being kind of, you know, acknowledged and then admired. And then when you do it again, you go back to ridiculous and people ridicule you for it. And as an entrepreneur, um, you know, it's like you're, you get kind of used, you get used to that cycle, but it, it uh, honestly, I, I won't lie, it, it still hurts when I get those emails because I'm like, dude, like I, this was this was never about you. You know, this this is this was me experimenting with you know how I want to uh, create value in this world and and, and build software, and I, I really am sorry you feel that way, but uh, I hope I hope you gained something in the last couple of years. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Going back to you know, first of all, thank you for sharing that insight. I know um, you're talking about rebranding, and you haven't mentioned that before. So I honor that you mentioned that here. Thank you. Um, going back to your startups, do you think that this is something that everybody can do? Can anyone create a startup, or does it take a certain kind of person? You know, that's a great question, and the the, the answer is yes. Like my my the reason I I do so much coaching now, um, and I'm in a place where I can, I'm so thankful for it, is that I want to, I want to lower the barrier of entry for, for, for new products, for great ideas, um, and help people to execute. You know, the, the saddest thing, and, and you heard, heard me say this um, at, on stage at, at Michael Hyatt's conference, the saddest thing is when people who have great ideas never execute. And I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tragedy. It really is it's nothing short of a tragedy. It's, it's a, you have tens of thousands of people who follow you and, and read your blog, and which means that there are tens of thousands of great ideas, but what, for whatever reason, they lack the courage, the resolve, perhaps the right push or kick off of the cliff, so to speak, mm-hmm. to actually go do it. And you know, everyone, even you, and everyone you probably know has has probably said, "Hey, I got this great idea for an app." And the moment I hear that, like my heart like leaps out of my chest because I'm like, "Great! So what is it?" And, but the, the next thing m- most people say is, 
they begin to list out the justifications and the reasons why they can't. Well, I don't know if it's that good of an idea. Or, you know, I, I'm not a developer. Or I'm not a designer. Or you know, I just thought about it, you know, last week. And so it's probably not a mature idea. And so, like, almost kind of instinctually, we start, you know, getting ourselves to a place where we start convincing ourselves that it's not worth pursuing. And my job as an educator and as a, and as a coach is to say, no, 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 let's go back to the, the initial drive, the initial motivation, the initial spark. Let, let's, let's cultivate that. Let's not lose that. You have a great idea, and certainly there's some hurdles to overcome, but they're not as large as you believe. And so anyone who's had a great app idea um, – You'll be surprised to know that building some of these applications are, are really not that difficult. I was walking through. A, a, I had a I coached a gentleman this afternoon. He came in around two, and I spent six about an hour with him. And he was interested in building some an application um, that creates some geolocation around interests. Um, not a new idea, but um, he thought it was innovative, and and I'm, I wanted to encourage him. But the, the first thing he said was, I don't, I'm not a developer. I'm, I've always been a project manager. I've worked with developers and designers, but I, I'm, not, I'm not a developer. And so I quickly then, I opened, I opened a browser, and I quickly went to the development documentation around that Apple provides. They're, they have developer docs and, and, and even tutorials and even sample code. And I said, your idea fits in this category. And look at what Apple has already provided you. In fact, your idea, and I kind of outlined very quickly in the developer documentation, I said 70%, maybe even 80% of your code is already written for you. It hmm. All it takes is for you to go do it. And, and, and then we, we, I just saved some links for him and said, here's the core you know, implementation for geolocation. Here's the core um, architecture for um, XYZ. And I just said, care, 70, 80% of your, your software is already built, but you just need the courage to go fill in the 20%. And I, I, I mean, his eyes just like grew wide. And all it took was me to share information that, that already existed. And so I, I think that's really what, leaders you know like you with your your community we're, that's what we're charged and responsible for doing is is opening people's eyes to the possibility I, that's why i love you know seeing your posts about how you you share kind of all of your the ins and outs of, of building your income and that you you're, you don't hide anything you say look it I'm, I'm a normal guy and i'm going to share everything that i do and show you that it is quite possible to do what I do, there, there's no nothing magical. There's nothing mystical. Um, there's no there are no secret buttons to, to press. It's just hard work and then the courage to go do it. Now, do you think courage can be taught? Because I know a lot of people, they just don't believe in themselves. You know, all educators by by almost kind of nature are idealists. Um, I have a, um, a a graduate degree in education, and so I know this. At an academic level, and then it was just kind of built into me. You know, the teachers we are created to you know to, to help facilitate the you know the insane. We're, we're we're here to help idealize what the future for our students could be, and we we know statistically speaking that nine out of ten of our students will never go do what we hope them to do. But that doesn't mean that we don't we change the what, what we preach. You know, when I when I'm sitting in front, I was in Monday. I was in Greenville coaching a, a new technology accelerator, and they're on the second cohort of this class. 
half of six out of ten of these startups were this was the first startup ever. And I looked them straight in the face Monday and said, This is your if this is your first startup, you you will fail in some cataclysmic ways. That doesn't mean that you stop or you get scared. Just know it. But here's what the, the possibilities are. Here's what you, the raw potential is. And here's what I can teach you. And I know that most of you will fail, but that's okay. Because if you're here, this, it won't be your last startup. Maybe it's your second or your third that will be successful. So you keep teaching the same thing. You can do it. Have courage. Be brave. It's not as far as you believe. And eventually, some of them will move on. And, and do it. And, and again, statistically speaking, many people will not. But I'm always going to encourage people to try. Yeah, I do the same thing. And I think it's it's interesting because, you know, when we're kids and when we go to school, we are conditioned to the fact that, you know, getting below 60% is failing. You know, uh, that, that there's a clear point of failure. When you don't fail, you're not doing things the way you're supposed to do. So go study harder or you know, retake the test and, or, or, you know, redo third grade or whatever it is. And I think that's unfortunate because like you said, a lot of people come in and they hear that they're going to fail or I, you know, I tell that, I tell that to people too, who I coach or consult with. And I say, you know what, you're probably going to fall on your face, but you got to keep going. And they're like, I don't want to fail. Well, you sort of have to. And, um, you know, it's not bad. Like you said. Yeah. It's, I failed out of. Um, I went to Georgia Tech, so one of the large, you know better software engineering programs in the southeast, and and I failed out of um, software my software classes, <laughs> and I, I and I don't say that like facetiously because that sounds cool. I literally actually failed. Um, my GPA in my freshman year was like a two point one, so I had most mo- mostly D's and F's, and then like a B and a C here and there, and but I, and I've been building software for years and. And it's just, and but immediately because the institution said that I failed, I went through a dark depression. In fact, um, if I can be so bold and candid, I attempted suicide that first year, um, and I was unsuccessful. Thank goodness, and I had to, I, I had to leave school, and I, I, I got therapy and um, and a lot of counseling and and some drugs to help with it, um, and so I survived. But the institution told me that you suck. And even though I had years of very successful enterprise-level software experience, and I didn't know how to handle that. Um, and I really think that's sad that we can, we can quickly label ourselves you know, as a failure because some person or some institution or some power says, you, know, you didn't do it our way, so you, you, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took, me, um, it took me a couple of years to recover from that. And um, and I'm so glad that I did. I didn't, I didn't quit, but I did leave that program altogether. And I didn't graduate as a computer science major. I graduated with some crazy, you know, kind of cobbled together, non-engineering degree. Um, and I so I eventually did get a diploma. But man, those were some really dark years. And I think that's what a lot of people will experience, especially with online and blogging, is the first year or the first, you know, at least the first couple of months, if not the first year, they they have no idea what they're doing, and they feel like. Oh, I'm not like Pat yet. I'm not like Pat yet, and that's true. No one will ever be like Pat. But you know, they're, they're learning as they go, and that's what you did. That's what I did, um, and, and we we fell down a lot. Yeah. You know? Well, thank you for being uh, candid about that, John. Uh, 
Okay, so so you're doing a lot of coaching and advising, and you're working with a lot of startups. What would you say are the most common struggles right now for people, and you know, what is your advice to them? The, the number one struggle with um, for entrepreneurs, especially the ones that I work, is they have incredibly large egos, and they believe that they can do most of what they need by themselves. I shared this, I may have shared this on stage, but I've said it so many times I can't remember where, where I've said it, but I tell um, all entrepreneurs, at least at some point very early on, I tell them, this is, this is the cold hard truth about success in entrepreneurship, but success in startups, success in technology, and success in, in business and building great product. You will make more money, you will have more fun, and you will have more margin in your life when you partner with others. You will make more money. And that's typically the biggest hurdle is, hey, if I partner with someone, then I have to give away equity in the business or you know, I earn less money. That's true on the short term. But in the long run, you make way more money. Um, just think of every great product that you own. It was built by a team. It wasn't built by an individual. In a rare circumstance, it may have been built by an individual. But game-changing, innovative technology like Facebook and Twitter – and every Apple product that you've ever touched was built by teams. And that's, you, you, just, you just need to process that for a moment. And those are successful products, incredibly billion-dollar companies now. And so I say if, if you want to survive you know, as an entrepreneur, as a startup, you have to get over your ego and you have to go get help. And sure, you will give away part of your company. You will give away some equity. In the short term, it may sting a bit, but that's good. You will, you will go farther. You'll make more money. You'll have more fun with it for sure. And you'll create more margin. And margin is, is very important for, for people like you and me where we have families because I think that's where we get a lot of our motivation. Mm-hmm. And without, without margin, without that distance between you and the company, the product, and the business, you can't invest in your kids. You can't invest in your spouse. And then you, you really lose track and lose sight of what what really matters. Yeah. Speaking of of family, you know how do, how do you manage? You know, I know you're a family man, and you care a lot about your family. I loved the pictures you showed huh. on uh, at the platform conference, and there's some um, some more amazing pictures of your beautiful family at Tent Blogger. Um, but you know, you talked a little bit about this. Uh, you know, we have the same similarities that we are family people. But how do you stay on top of being there for your family and also being there for your business and your startups, which, you know, different than what I do. I know what you do is probably takes way more time than, um, you know, me at this point, you know, especially because I'm at home and I'm blogging and, you know, a startup with a team and, and software development. That that just sounds crazy. Like, how do you balance that? Yeah, there is actually um, balancing is kind of a kind of a I think. It's kind of a logical fallacy um, because balance in and of itself uh, creates tension. You know, it's tension of two sides. If you actually look, you know, in your mind's eye, think of a, a balance beam. There's incredible tension. It's right in the middle, and so tension is good. Um, but what we've created instead of creating balance or you know work-life balance, so to speak, is my wife and I have created boundaries. Very, very simple, very, very clear boundaries. Um, and what's nice about boundaries is there's a lot of flexibility within those boundaries. And so I'll give you, I'll give you exactly what, what this looks like. Um, so over time in our, in our marriage and, you know, as we've learned kind of more about each other, my wife realized that I really enjoyed waking up early 
and that I got most of my work done in the very early mornings. And so we agreed explicitly, not implicitly, kind of, you know, and just assume that everyone thinks all right. We explicitly said, well, okay, great. Your most product, pr- productive point in, in the day is in the morning. So between whenever you decide to wake up, which is the, you know, there's freedom there. You can, you, John, you can wake up whenever you want. You can work solid on anything you want, wherever you want, till seven. And at seven is a boundary marker because seven is when our kids wake up. And that's when I need to bathe them, clean them up, feed them, and then get them to school. And between seven and eight, or eight thirty rather, um, hundred percent dedicated to the kids, making sure that they're, you know, getting school clean and don't look like a mess when they walk through, you know, into school. Mm-hmm. And then at eight thirty to um, eight thirty to three o'clock, John, those are another that's another boundary, you know, for me. You can do whatever the heck you want. You can go to your office downtown. You can work in your office at home. You can go to Starbucks. It, it, you know, again, my wife said, I don't care. It, that's just another boundary marker. Do whatever you need to get done. But at 3 o'clock, you're home. And I don't care you know, if you're walking in at 2.55, at 2.30. But at 3, you're here because that's when, that's the hardest point of my day when I'm having to pick up my daughter you know, my daughter's from school, and I have to get one of them to Taekwondo or I have to get the other one to soccer practice. And from 3 till 7.30 is family time, just another boundary marker. Um, we eat at, we eat at 5, 5.30. We do stories and play and, and put, you know, start put the kids down. And at 7.30, when all the kids are down, at that boundary marker, we have a conversation. And I have a conversation with my spouse, my wife. And I say, hey, sweetie, um, I would love to get back to work on an application that I'm building, or you know, I, I, I lost some time the other day because of the meeting. And and um, would you allow me to spend some more time on my computer? And she will look me right in the face and say, you know what, that's totally legit. And she'll go do laundry or watch TV or watch a movie or whatever. Or you know, she just gives me a look, and I know she doesn't <laughs> want me to go. She doesn't want me to go to back to the computer. And so we'll go. Look. Yeah. Well, so we'll go. We'll watch a movie together, or. Um, we play Monopoly. Um, I, that might be awkward, but we play Monopoly. We've never we'll finished just, a game of Monopoly. We, oh man, Monopoly is great. So, we'll, and we'll play Monopoly, That's and cool. then so it's like every day, it's a conversation. But within those in, you know, within those boundaries, I have incredible freedom to do whatever I need to do. And uh, and so that's that's how we have survived in our marriage. You know, I work incredibly hard. Um, and I know you said you don't work, you know, that much, but I know you do. You work very hard. Um, but then you save you save the time for 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 your family, and I save the time for my family. And so there's no there's no guessing game. I think that's one of the, the hardest things with with entrepreneurs and, and people who are you know incredibly in love with their work is if 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 it's a guessing game with your your spouse or your partner then there's just a lot of tension it's oh well, I don't know if he's going back to you know watch youtube videos or work or mm-hmm. why isn't he spending time with me at 7:30 we have we have a conversation yeah. do you want to hang out or you know do you want to do work yeah i've done a couple episodes in the past about this uh quote balance and, and family time and, and work time and it's it's pretty similar actually the schedule and how you know we we have a set schedule during the day but it's flexible and we talk. We talk a lot about what we have going on, what we need done. If she needs some support for some of the house stuff and taking care of the kids, then I'll do that. If 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 
you know, I'm able to and vice versa. If I have something going on, a launch or, you know, writing a book or something, she understands. I think it's just, it comes down to communication. I love the fact that you talk about, you know, these markers during the day that you come back together and you talk with your wife. I think that's, that's really important. I think that's key. And I think a lot of people out there listening will definitely benefit from what you just said. So thank you. And and there's, and there's a lot of flexibility, you know, like even right now I did the entire evening from the moment I got back at three because she needed a girl's night out. And so, you know, we had scheduled in advance. We, we share each other's calendar. So I haven't seen her for six, seven hours, and I have no idea when she's coming back. I hope she comes back soon. <laughs> um, but she's having a great girl's night out tonight, and so there's still flexibility. You know, we can, we can mess with the boundaries because we know, um, we, you know, we love each other and we know that we, we can be flexible. Awesome. So, John, a couple more things. Uh, I don't want to hold you too long because I know we're getting close to the hour here. Um, I want to talk about your Kickstarter campaign. And it's funny because I was just browsing Kickstarter and, you know, I'm sort of become a Kickstarter freak and I just go on there and look for interesting stuff. And I came across Pressgram. And I didn't know it was your project until I started watching the videos and, you know, you started talking. I was like, dude, I saw that guy at, uh, in Nashville and, and I started to read more about the project and, and I got really excited about it. Can you tell us what Pressgram is, why you created it and, you know, who's it for? Yeah, that is so, that's so funny. When I did get your email out of the blue, I was like, that's, that's really cool um, that you found it organically. Um, so Pressgram is, 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 is it's a simple iOS application where you can take a filtered photo, you can take an image at a filter, and then publish it to your WordPress blog. Now, this is very similar to Instagram, um, which is where I've gotten a lot of inspiration. And, I, so, and the story goes, back in October, I realized that I wanted to leave Facebook and I wanted to leave Instagram because I no longer agreed with their terms of service. I no longer agreed and, re- and liked the idea of this large corporate giant managing my data and ultimately not giving me creative control. Um, and in, interestingly enough, a few months later, the, in, the big in issue with Instagram came up where people realized that they could actually commercialize your pictures and actually make money from the hard work that, that you, were, you were creating for them. And so I decided that I was going to do something about it because I really enjoyed filtered photos, but I also wanted the control of, of, uh, of those photos and publish them wherever I wanted. And since I was, I love WordPress and I've been working with WordPress for a while, I decided to combine the two. And so you can quickly imagine how important this is for, for publishers. Just, you know, just think of your ability to take a photo, which you know, many of us do every day, add your, add the filter that you like because filters make everything better. Uh, yes, I, yep. I suck at photography. So I'm so thankful for filters because it makes me look awesome. And then being able to publish that directly to my WordPress blog. And I had like, you know, 16, 17, I don't know, maybe 2,000 followers on Instagram. And I just was kept thinking to myself, how many page views am I missing out on? How many page views am, am I losing because I'm giving those to Instagram? I would much rather own those completely on my own blog. And so I have consistency of not only um, page view development for, you know, for, my, you know, for my blog, but also have consistency of brand and messaging. And so um, for, for, for online publishers, this is going to be incredibly powerful for them. And so, I'm, so I started building it uh, six months ago, and on a whim, someone said, hey, you should kickstart it to see if other people want to invest in the idea. And, um, and I did, and it's been, the response has been very, very, very positive. 
Yeah, it's been going really well. I've been keeping track since I came upon it. Um, there's 272 backers for over $40,000 now, um, which is awesome. And and so you only have 10 more thousand to go before you reach your goal and, and get funded. Because now it's connected to WordPress, you can do some things that are, are very familiar to the WordPress ecosystem. For example, if you had... Um, if you just created a hashtag within the Pressgram system that was, you know, Pat Flynn, Pat, you know, hashtag Pat Flynn or, or hashtags, you know, smart passive income, then you could actually filter all of the photos that people hashtag into your, that network. And then what's neat is because you're publishing it to your blog, any comments that are done in the application are then synced up to the blog post um, that's related to, to the image. And so you have this continuity of conversation both in the application and then on in WordPress or you know whatever application you're using. And so definitely there are some neat points of innovation that I believe a lot of developers are going to catch on to because it's using open source technology. I mean, just the opportunities to do some really neat stuff with it are almost limitless. So I'm very excited to get into the hands of some developers to see what they'll do with it. Yeah, that's what I was, I was, that's what I was thinking. There's probably things that I can't even think of right now that it would be used for. Um, so I'm just really excited, mostly because, um, you know, I've been following a lot of what you're doing now, John, and I'm inspired by you and all your creative and amazing ideas, but also because the fact that, you know, we're, we're going to be able to keep our images, which I think is really important, especially now because I have kids and I want to make sure that all that stuff is my own and I don't want it being used in a way that it's not being, uh, not supposed to be used. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool. And, and, you know, I wish you the best of luck with oh, that. And I'll put a link to the Kickstarter campaign in the show notes, which you can get at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 61. Um, and all the other links and stuff mentioned in that in this session will be there. Um, you know, one more thing I wanted to kind of have you leave with us here. Sure, um, sure. Since, since you're in the startup world and, you know, I think this is, this is for anybody. I mean, take, like, take me through, let's say, for example, I came to you with a great idea for, you know, some type of web software. I just had the idea. I'm not a developer myself. Can you take me step by step on everything I need to do to make it successful? Yes. Um, okay. So this is, again, this is kind of a very global and very quick overview. But the first thing you do when you have a great idea is you write it down. And you, you don't keep it in your brain. You write it down. You vomit as, as much as you possibly can on a physical piece of paper. And I, I could spend a lot of time of, of why I think physical pieces of paper are, are really valuable. So don't just put it in Evernote. Don't just put it on like you know on a text document on your computer. Actually, write it down. There's something powerful when you you, you apply pressure with a pen onto a piece of paper, and then I want you to carry it around wherever you go for the next couple of weeks or even the next month. And I want you to share it with as many people as you possibly can. Even the people that you know, your spouse, your kids, your friends. Uh, maybe your business partners, um, people in, at Starbucks, in line at you know your local deli, just everyone, because this is what happens when you start sharing that idea. It starts becoming refined, and a and the refined idea is a much more mature idea. You'll get quickly feedback, instant guttural feedback from people, and especially complete strangers, to say that is a stupid idea or. That's a great idea, but have you thought about this? And again, because you have a piece of paper, you're not, you know, 
you know, have your iPhone and it's hard to type on an iPhone, you can quickly add that. And so that's what I do with great ideas. I capture them and I start sharing it because now the idea is refined. What's stopping now, people from copying my idea? Nothing. But here's the difference between you and the next person on the, on the street who has a great idea. If you're committed and you love the idea, you will actually see it to completion. Most people never execute on their ideas because they just never execute. And the reason I am a success as an entrepreneur and why many other entrepreneurs are a success is simply because we do it. And we don't just talk about it. We do it. But talking about it is where it starts. And because when you start talking about it with other people, you continue to drive the motivation. You continue to build momentum. And you continue to get excited on a much better and much more refined idea. And so after like an incubation period, a small incubation period, could be a week, could be two weeks, could be a month, you have a better idea about your great idea. The next step is finding someone to help. Now, you may have actually done that through sharing it with your partners, your spouse, random strangers, or even on the online in your blog, there are some people who may share a very similar interest. And you take note of those people. You write them down again. You know, Don't just put it in Evernote. <laughs> write, write it down. Say, Joe Smith had an incredible comment on my blog. In fact, it was very uh, comprehensive. And he even expressed interest in helping me out. You know, Write out Joe Smith. And so after that incubation period, you have a tally of a number of names of people who may be interested in joining your venture, and you email them, and you say very plainly, are you interested in exploring this idea with me further? And then you know, you do as what most normal people do. You begin to network. You, you begin to develop a relationship with them. Now, the question is, do they have the right skill set to help con- to, to contribute to that idea? They may be a developer. They may be a designer. They may be a systems architect. They may be a business developer. I mean, I don't know. But as you find the people who are, have the right affinity, have the right interest, you begin qualifying their skill set. And if you're building a web app, you're going to need, need a developer. So you're just going to have that in the back of your mind. Is this a developer? Is this a developer? Is this a developer? If you found one, great. Then you have literally your team. You have you created the idea, and you have someone who can build it. Move forward. Be merry. Profit. Have fun. Now, if... What happens in many cases is you find you you start building a team of interested people, and no equity has been discussed, no financial relationship discussed. Just people are interested in the idea. You find that your list, um, maybe you pared it down, that you don't have a developer. Well, then you need to go find one. And this is just as simple. You can go to tons of development boards, tons of development communities, Stack Exchange. You know, if there's a specific type of um, application like WordPress, there are tons of WordPress developers lurking around tons of WordPress boards. You can go to Reddit. I mean, I just saw an advertisement on Reddit, you know, before I started talking with you, Pat, about someone who's like, I need a WordPress developer. And 10 people within like the first hour responded, you should check out this person. I'm available. I mean, go to Reddit of all places, you know, and then (laughs) network with them. And if you're stuck, if you can't find someone, which it really is doubtful at this point, go to Odesk, I guess. You know, go to um, kind of the other development boards. Or if you have a little bit of capital, put a job app, you know, put a job request or um, you know, looking for a developer on a, on a job board or a job site. Mm-hmm. And then honestly, that's as far as you know, the advice I can give you because at that point, you've, you have a refined idea. You've had the courage to begin to look for partners and people to help you out, to develop a team. You had the gumption to go find someone who can build it. And now it's, it's entirely up to you. 
and and that and that, literally that's, that's that's as formulaic as it might sound. That that's a, the entire package. And may for you know may fortune shine you know brightly on you and your new venture. <laughs> Dude, awesome, John. I think that's a perfect way to uh, to end the show. Um, it's very inspiring. I love what you said about just asking people because I know so many people who come to me with ideas and they make me sign an, a non disclosure agreement. And, you know, maybe because I'm in this space, that's legit. But yeah, like you said, if you just keep asking people, you're going to refine your idea. And I've, as, as simple as that may sound, I've actually never heard that advice before. Talk about it, get other people's opinions and get your idea the way it should be before you start developing it. I think yeah. that's, that's great. Well, I, and I've never signed an NDA ever. I, I just, I just don't believe them. I believe in them because I say, if it's as great of an idea as it is, then you're going to go do it, and that's going to be great. You know, I'm, you're going to, you have, I am not a threat to you because it was your idea, and you're more motivated than me. So I'm just like, and so I've lost. I I don't say lost, but there are tons of people who were who were mortally offended that I wouldn't sign their NDA, and they said, oh, "I'll never work with you again." And I said, "I was like, great. I, I don't want to work with you. I've got I've got enough stuff to build." Uh, um, so yeah, that's funny. All right, man. Well, where can people go to learn more about you and and what you're up to? Um, very simply, my kind of personal landing page is fine. It's just John, J O H N dot D O, John dot do, or do, as some people say. John dot do. I think that's a perfect, uh, you know, just do it type of thing for you. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. Again, check out Pressgram on Kickstarter if you haven't already. I'm really excited. I'm going to be uh, contributing to that myself. And, John, just thank you so much. Um, very inspirational, and I uh, can't wait to talk to you again in the future. Pat, thank you so much, man. All right, man. Take care. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Saddington from John.do or John.do. Uh, definitely an amazing person, an amazing thinker. You know, it's sort of cool to see how successful people like John, you know, people who seem to just be successful over and over and over again in many different things. It's it's cool to see how their brain works, and he's definitely given us some great tips from uh, you know productivity to particular mindsets to uh, actually improving your product idea and refining it. I think that was genius. Now, thanks again to John, and thank you, the listener, for spending time with me today. Of course, without you, this show wouldn't would be nothing, and you know it would be it would go nowhere. But we just passed 3 million downloads and I, you know, something just finished in the background. Did you hear that? Uh, and I, I couldn't be more ecstatic. Thank you so much. Show notes are again available at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 61. Get all the links and helpful information there and I'll see you next week in session 62 if I don't see you between now and then in San Diego at Social Media Examiner or excuse me, Social Media Marketing World, uh, which is put on by Social Media Examiner and Michael Stelzner. And uh, if you're going to be at that event, as always, look out for me. I'll be the guy with the red backpack that says, hello, my name is Pat. Um, come say hi. I'd love to meet you. Cheers. Thank you so much. And I uh, wishing you all the best. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI, and today... 
I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. 